good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 9. You can get a, a message outline out there on the ministry counter right outside the door there. We're going to continue on our series, Seeing Jesus Clearly. And this is a continuation of our study of the book, the Gospel of Mark is what we're doing. To, to really see Jesus clearly, that's what we want to see. Looking at the life of Jesus. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some really, including today, some really hard teachings of Jesus. We're going to be looking at some of those. And, and Jesus, remember, is on his way. He's on his way to the cross, to eventually to die. And, and he shared with the people some interesting verses. He said that if you want to be first, you have to be last, the servant of all. And then he also taught them, he says, we give our attention to those who are strong and, and powerful and rich and, and mighty. But Jesus gave his attention to little children. And he says that whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for the sake of me, he says, will we'll save it. And one of the things you hear often in the Christian community today is many people will, will say that we can have, we have heaven then, but we can also have heaven now. We can have our best life now is what many people say. You hear that, and, and Jesus approaches it much differently. See, he says that you have heaven, it will be wonderful, it will be powerful, and there will be no more tears. And the reason will be no more tears because all the things that cause tears on this earth won't be there. And all the things that cause pain in this earth won't be there. And God will wipe away every tear. It says that in Revelation 21.4. It says he, meaning God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be more, no, more, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. But Jesus is saying, he says to us, that this life that we live is now more like a war. Not war with other people, but war with ourselves and to, to live the life for God, to live for God. There's a battle going on the inside of us. And each and every day, are we going to yield to our flesh and to our will and what we want to do? Or are we going to yield to the Spirit of God? And there's that battle. I don't know if you know that, but we all have that. You and I have this propensity to sin, and we want to sin. We urge to do the things that we want to do, but we're trying to live for Jesus. So there's a battle going on. If you have your Bibles in Mark chapter 9, we're going to look at today Jesus' viewpoint of sin. It's very important to get his take on sin, right? And in Mark chapter 9, if you have your outline, I want to give you three steps we must take regarding sin. Three steps. Let me give you the first one right, right away. The first one is consider the weight of our sin. Consider the weight of our sin is what he says. Let's read Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Everyone have it? Mark chapter 9, verse 42. And Jesus says, if, And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around their neck. Now these are some strong words, aren't they? Wouldn't you say that? These are red-letter words, so these are words of Jesus, but they're very strong words. But keep in mind the context here. Uh, Jesus is still in the Capernaum area. It's a, it's a city nor on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a synagogue there which Jesus taught at, but there's also a house. We left off last week that Jesus was in this house with his 12 disciples. And there were some children in the house, and Jesus called one of the children to himself. And now he is saying, he's saying it would be better, better than causing one of these little ones to sin, it would be better that if you would tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Think of that, some very powerful words. And the little ones that he's referring to, I don't think it just means children, little children. I, I think it refers to children, children who believe in Jesus. But I believe it's also young believers. I believe it's adults who have just put their faith and trust in Jesus. They have this eternal life coming to them. And, and they're not mature yet. They're still learning in the field. They're still kind of learning the basic truths of Christianity. 
The writer of Hebrews explains it. In Hebrews 5, 12, he says this. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So meaning there's some still that are babes in Christ that aren't ready for the meat of the word. They still need the milk of the word. They still need elementary truths. They haven't really grown is what he's saying. So Jesus said if you cause one of these to have a spiritual shipwreck, if you have caused one of these to sin, he says it's really bad. He actually goes to the extreme and said it would be better off that you would be dead than to cause one of them to sin. That's what he's saying. It would be better off you would be dead. Have you ever played the I'd rather game? I'd rather have do this than that. Have you ever played it? We're going we're to play it here in just a moment. I'm going to ask you three questions, and I want you to choose which one you'd rather do. The first one is, would you rather go bankrupt or be robbed of all your earthly possessions? Which one would you rather do? Make a choice. Number two, would you rather crash and burn in a plane wreck or be forced to fly a plane without any experience or lessons beforehand? Which one would you choose? you have a preference? Would you rather eat rat poison or live in a house infested with thousands and thousands of rats? And maybe, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't really like this game because all three of those scenarios, there's not really a, a good choice. None of those choices are good, right? That's what Jesus is saying. None of the choices are good. To sin, tie a millstone, those are not good, right? Those are not good. And it's the picture he paints for them because in the Roman Empire, there's actually, if you go back in the history, you can find there's a couple situations recorded where the Roman government actually did that. They tied a millstone, a heavy stone, a stone used for grinding grain. They tied it around a person's neck, and they threw them into the sea. And the, the image is vivid. It's horrific. It's terrible. It, just to think of it, it's stark. And you look at this. Because in the bottom of the sea, you have someone that's upside down with a millstone tied around their neck and their bodies floating with the current. That's the image that Jesus is giving. That's how horrific, that's how bad our sin is, is what he's trying to say. That unless you live on an island all by yourself, that your sin will affect somebody else, is what he's saying. It affects somebody else, is when you sin. And that's what he's saying, it's a horrible thing. To, to live your life in a situation where our sin affects another person. And how we apply it today, how we can apply it, is we're not living on islands. None of us are living on islands here. We have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to live our life in such a way that we understand that our sin is just not about us. That when we sin, don't think, what's well, my life, I can do what I want with it. No, it's just not about you because you're affecting so many other people. There's a ripple effect because people are watching. They're listening, and they're seeing your life, and they're seeing exactly what you do. And I have a responsibility, and you have a responsibility to those people around you. May I speak to grandparents this morning? If you're a grandparent, I'm a grandparent. If you speak to grandparents, so I'm speaking to myself. You know, sometimes when we're a little older, we think, ah, you know, I'm a little old, maybe I get a little slack, right? And, you know, when you get older, it seems like you just say things. You ever get that? You just say things, and there's no filter. <laughs> you probably think, man, my mom and my dad just say, they just say things. There's no more longer a filter. And we think it's all right to do that, but it's not. Or sometimes maybe we get to that point where we're a little older, and we think, you know, I have experience. I'm kind of mature, and I'm wise. And I'm to the place now where I don't really do anything wrong. And I don't send anybody. I don't know if anybody's to that point. Hopefully you're not. I don't raise your hand, but uh, don't raise your hand. But you're, you're not to the point because we all sin. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, 
who was, a, he walked with Jesus, who was a pastor, I believe, at the church of Ephesus. And he wrote that if we confess our sins, meaning that we will sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So he says, if we sin, meaning you will sin, this is what you're to do, confess your sin. And God promised to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. But if you're here today and you say, but, but I don't think I do sin. Well, verse 10, right after that, he says this. If we claim we have not sinned, if we claim we don't sin, we make him out to be a liar, and his, and his word has no place in our lives. Because God says you're going to sin, and you say, no, I don't sin, God. I don't sin. I'm perfect right now. I've arrived at, in that place in my life. And God said, no, you haven't. And we're saying, God, you're a liar. And the truth of God has no place in our hearts. How many of us would agree that we all sin? Okay, all of us agree with that, right? We all agree with that. We all sin. Well, grandparents, we have a responsibility. Back to the grandparents. To the family who is watching us. And your family, if you're a grandparent, your family's watching you, whether, whether you realize it or not. Whether your children live far away, they're watching you. And there are many reasons that we should not sin. There's many reasons. But the first and foremost reason, the reason we should not sin, because Jesus is in the cross. Because you and I are now to honor and glorify God with our lives, right? That our lives are not our own. If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, Jesus came to give his life for us. And now he expects you and I to live our lives for him our allegiance to him, to live for him, and to honor him, and to glorify him. And so that's the number one reason we don't sin. That's the number one reason for everyone. The reason we don't sin to honor God, to glorify him. But the second reason, because I have children, and their spouses, and my grandchildren, and maybe my great-grandchildren, and I don't want to do anything in my life that may become an excuse for them to dishonor God. I don't want to do anything in my life that might cause them to stumble before Jesus. I don't want to be the reason that that happens to them. And that means I can't manage my sin. That means I have to get rid of my sin. I have a responsibility to them, to my grandchildren, to my children, to their spouse, to my spouse. I have a responsibility to them. And that's what Jesus is saying, the heaviness of our sin, that we would understand it. The responsibility live in such a way that we won't give other people an excuse to sin. Because they see me doing it. Even though I might be able to do it, but if I do this, I might cause those grandchildren, my children, my great-grandchildren to see it and say, I can do it and cause them to sin. They may not understand. And he goes on, and Jesus says this, and this is really heavy. He said, you come to the point in your life, you say, I'd rather be dead than to cause one of those to stumble in their life, to cause one of them to sin, to cause one of them to shipwreck their life. He says, it goes that far, the heaviness of sin, that I'd rather be dead than do that. That's the gravity of, of sin. That's the weight of sin is what he's talking about. That's what he's saying. And that's what Jesus is saying. But can I speak to older brothers and sisters today? If you're an older brother and sister, maybe you're at a place where, you know, I'm talking probably of teens or, or you know, you're, you're, you're at the place where you feel like you can stretch your wings a little bit, that, that I've got this freedom. You think, I can do some things. And mom and dad may not know what I'm doing. I'm ready to stretch your wings. Let me just share this with you. You have younger brothers and sisters, whether you realize it or not, that look up to you. And they're watching you. And if they see older brother and sister do some of these things that they think they do, you might cause one of them to stumble in their own faith. Might cause them to sin yourself. And you want to be responsible for that. Because that younger brother and sister is looking up to you. So you need to live your life to not cause them to stumble. That's what Jesus is saying. You have to consider the weight of your sin. It's just not about you. Can I talk to moms and dads? We want our children to make right decisions, right? Amen? 
We want them to honor God. And Moses, when he wrote Deuteronomy 6, he, he said that he challenged the people to be theologically correct is what he said. And he said in Deuteronomy 6, he said, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord. Uh, no, the Lord our God, the Lord is one is what he said. To be theologically correct is what he, what he told him. But if you're theologically correct, then you have to own it. And you have to live it. Remember that. You just can't say it, but you've got to own it and you live it. And it goes on, the Bible says, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And then it says we are to impress them upon our children, that we are, that we are to teach our children. They're watching. Not only are we to teach them, but we're to live it out. We're to live it out before them, how to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Great theology that is not reinforced with right kind of behavior that gives our children excuse to reject great theology. If you and I say, boy, I believe in the Bible and I believe in God, the doctrines of the Bible and all this, and I'm not living the life that follows along with this, it gives our children and our grandchildren every excuse to reject what the Bible has to say. If you have great theology and great beliefs, you've got to live it out. You've got to live it out with the right kind of living. It's so important, parents. Just don't, don't say, this is what I believe, but are you living it that way? It's so important that we live that way. These are hard words by Jesus, but that's what he's saying. How serious that we need to look at sin. We need to consider the weight of our sin, is what he says. Consider the weight. But the second step we must take regarding sin, it even gets even deeper, is number two, sever the sources of our sin, he says. Sever the sources of our sin. We continue on in verse 43, and Jesus said this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off kind of drastic, it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, whether the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Pretty strong words. And many times this passage is misunderstood and, and not interpreted the right way. But Jesus is using this word hell in, in these passage here. He uses it. And it comes from the word Gehenna. You've probably heard of the word Gehenna, right? Gehenna. It comes from the word Hinnon, the Valley of Hinnon, which is, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, the Valley of Hinnon had a reputation in the early days, uh, especially with King, for example, with King Ahaz. They would use the Valley of Hinnon to to make child sacrifices. And Jeremiah the prophet, he condemned it, and King Josiah, a godly king, came, and he stopped it. And he used that place, who many considered that valley to be a holy place. King Josiah made that place, he turned it into a dump, an actual garbage dump, where garbage was constantly burning in, this, in the dump in the Valley of Hinnon. And it became a symbol for Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnon and symbol for hell and for the afterlife. And it was for all those who did not know or rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it says, a fire that is not quenched and where the worm doesn't die. And what Jesus is saying about this place, he says, it would be better for you to go to heaven, to have life in heaven, maimed or marred, than to endure hell whole. Think about that. It's better for you to enter heaven, maimed or marred, than to, than to endure hell whole with your whole body. In this passage is, is Jesus promoting masochistic behavior and also a self-mutilation where we're actually to cut off a parts of our body 
to make us holy? Is that what he's saying here? Well, not at all. Matter of fact, the Old Testament condemns that. So what is Jesus actually saying here in this passage? What does it really mean so we can have a good understanding and apply it to our lives? Well, Jesus here is using a figure of speech, and you've heard me say this before, but here it's considered parabolic hyperbole. It's hyperbole. And hyperbole is simply intentional exaggeration to make a point. He's trying to make a point. Just like when a mother might say, tell her son, I've told you a million times to close that door when you come in from outside. In reality, as she told her son a million times, it's possible, probably not, right? It's just an exaggeration. It's just, I've told you so many times to close the door. You've heard it before. You know what you should be doing. It's an intentional exaggeration. And Jesus is, in essence, saying, do whatever you have to do to stop sinning. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. And he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. How many would say that's drastic? How many would say, boy, that's heavy news? You know, many people preach that. You know, somebody, you got to you do it. Well, let me ask you a question. Does your hand cause you to sin? If you go in a store and you see something you like and, and your hand reaches out to grab it and you pull it back, was it your hand cause you to sin? Was it your hand cause you to sin? Does your foot cause you to sin? Do you have a foot that is just out of control and it's moving all around, your body has no control over it? So does your foot cause you to sin? No. Does your eye cause you to sin? That your eye is out of control and it's looking at things that it shouldn't be looking at and doing things that it shouldn't be looking at. No, you have control of your eye, so your eye doesn't cause you to sin. What causes you to sin? It's the heart that causes us to sin. Try cutting that out. That's what Jesus is saying, trying to cutting that out. Yeah, how many of you ever heard of the story of Dave Trebecki? Nobody, come on. Sport fans? He was a pitcher in the, for the San Francisco Giants in the 80s. And during a game, he had some upper uh, arm problems. His arm was hurting, and he went to the doctor and found out it was a deltoid muscle. They checked it out, and there was a lump there, and it turned out to be cancer. He had to have surgery and remove the lump and went through rehab, and many people said he would never pitch again. Well, that following year, he was in the minors and finally made it to the majors. And one day, Dave Trebecki was pitching. He was a left-hand pitcher. And when he threw the ball on the mound during a game, his arm just snapped in half literally just snapped right there on the mountain. It was horrific when you saw it, what happened there. Well, they find out that uh, later that the cancer had returned. And in 1991, in order to save his life, he had to have his arm amputated. They had to cut the cancer out to save his life. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do whatever you have to do. Cut it out to stop sinning. Whatever drastic steps that are necessary, you need to do that. That's what Jesus is saying to us drastic. Let me apply this in two different ways to two different groups this morning. For those uh, who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior yet, yet, let me ask you a question. How do you cut off your hand, your foot, or your eye? How do you clean up your life enough to make yourself acceptable to Jesus? How do you do that? If this is what Jesus is saying, the answer is, is you don't or you can't. It's impossible to do that. What has happened is there needs to be a heart change in what the Bible calls regeneration. It's where the Holy Spirit of God comes and takes that which is dead, and he makes it alive. And only God can do that. And that comes through faith in Jesus, where we come and we understand who Jesus is. 
that he's the son of God, that he's God, and he left heaven, and he came to the earth, and he lived on this earth, but then he went to the cross, and all of our sins and your sins and the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus, and Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and now whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus believes that Jesus paid for their sins upon the cross and trusts him as their savior, they become a child of God, and when that happens, there's a changed life. Their life is changed. See, you can't clean up your life. Don't even try. But give your life to Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to change it from the inside out. Put your faith and trust in him. If you don't know Jesus yet, you can try to clean up your own life. You can try to be good and reform and and do all the right things, but that will not get you into heaven. You need to understand that. No matter how good you are, how good you try to be, that will not get you to heaven. Only way is through Jesus. We have to give our life to Jesus and let the Spirit of God change you from the inside out and make you a new creation. The Bible said, well, the old is gone and the new has come. We're a new creature in Christ where the old Doug is gone and now I'm to live to Jesus and to follow him. That's what God wants for each and every one of us. So if you never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you need to do that. Only through Christ do we find forgiveness of sins. Let me talk to the second group, to those who say that, who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. What happens when we sin? Now that we're believers in Jesus, Jesus said take drastic steps, whatever is necessary, to stop sinning. I remember years ago, uh, there's a man I, I, I knew, and I, I still know that he loves sports, and he loved to play sports. And I asked him one time, did you watch that game on TV last night? It was a big game. And he looked at me and said, you know, I don't watch sports anymore. I thought, what? This guy watched every game. I says, why not? He goes, I said, what happened? He goes, why? Well, I, I watch sports every night in my life, and it kind of became an idol. You know, and, and he said, and, and he said, watching those sports, he says, it took me away from my family. It took me away from reading the Bible. It took me from, away from serving God in the church. He says, so what I did, he says, I took my big screen TV, and he had this big screen TV, not the, not the flat screens. It was one of those projection TV. You remember those big monster TVs? He said, I took it downstairs in my basement all by myself, got it downstairs, and then he pushed it underneath the, his stairs down there. And he said, that's where it stands. And he broke it. He says, and I broke it too. And I thought to myself, there's another way he could have accomplished that. But I knew what he was saying. And he knew what Jesus was saying. That we're to take a drastic action. Take drastic action. See, it's easy to slither into sin, but it's impossible to slither out of sin. It takes drastic action. And my encouragement to any of you, any of us today, that are caught in habits, you said, I've tried it a thousand times or a hundred times to stop this habit. You know, the wonderful thing about salvation it's all God, right? That God does it all. He does it all. We do nothing. That Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and upon that cross, Jesus died. And he did the complete work on the cross. He died for our sins. He did it all. You and I don't have to do anything for salvation. We don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all. All you and I have to come is accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. The work is finished on the cross, right, for our sins. It's been paid in full. And all we have to do is accept it. And what that is called is when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, it's called justification. That now we're declared righteous by God. That God looks at us through the blood of Jesus and says, you are right with me. We're declared righteous by God. But sanctification, I mean, so let me get this right. Justification is all God, right? You understand that? Yes. Sanctification is different. Sanctification, what I call is a divine human cooperative. Where God works in our hearts, according to Philippians chapter 1-6, it says, being confident of this, that he will begin a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, 
God the Father working in our lives so you and I could become more and more like Jesus. Isn't that great? And he will never stop. You have to understand that. Once you accept Christ, God will never stop. He will never give up. He will never tire. He will continue to pursue you to accomplish that important work that he started in your life. He will never stop. But you and I, once we accept Christ, we just can't be passive in this. We just can't be sitting back and say, okay, I don't have to do anything. No, that's not what it says. Sanctification for me to be more and more like Jesus takes me to participate. It means he expects me to yield my life to him, to yield my will to him, to yield my body to him, to yield all my gifts and talents that he's given me to him. That my body becomes instruments of righteousness, the Bible says, according to Romans chapter 6. And I'm to live for him. And now I have a purpose to live for him. And I must pronounce all those other things in my life as, as dead. I'm dead to my old self, dead to my old ways. And I'm alive to Jesus. And if I sin, what am I supposed to do if I sin? What does it say? Confess my sin. I must confess my sin. That's what I, it doesn't mean that I'm not still saved if I sin, but to restore that fellowship with God, that communication with God. I've got to confess my sin to stay right with God, to continue to walk with him. So he says, I must do that, confess it. Every one of us have to do that. We have to participate in the sanctification. We can't sit back and expect God to do all the work. Salvation, he does it all. But sanctification, I become more like Jesus. I have to participate. It's a divine human cooperative. God's going to do his. He's always going to do his part. But I have to do my part and yield myself to him. But there's this journey that we're on. And if there's addictions or, or uh, ha- bad habits we're struggling with, we're to cut them off. With God's help and taking the proper steps, the Bible says we're just to cut them off. That's what Jesus is saying. Cut them off. For some of us, the temptation may be through the internet. It's pornography or some other things. We're to cut it off. To do whatever is necessary is what the Bible is saying. It, it says, but you maybe you say, well, I can handle this. If you can handle this, it wouldn't be a problem, right? The problem is when we try to handle it means I'm trying to manage my sins. And we can't manage our sins. We have to cut it off is what Jesus says. We have to stop doing it. Do whatever is necessary. Many years ago, when I was pastoring another church, I had a, a man come to me, and he says, you know, uh, I'm having trouble, he says, that uh, uh, with pornography on the Internet. And it was really affecting him and, and struggling with him. And you may think this is harsh, but this is how I usually counsel. I says, well, you're seeing it on the Internet, so the thing you need to do is get rid of the Internet. Don't allow it in your house. And then you need to take this step. You need to tell your wife help her, allow her to make you accountable. Well, this man looked at me and his eyes just, what? He says, well, I can't tell my wife. And so therefore, I can't get rid of the internet because she would ask why. And I realized right then that this man wasn't willing to do whatever it takes. And because of that, he still struggled with this problem in his life. It was a major problem and it caused major, major harm in his marriage. It infected his marriage, it affected his children, everything about it. Jesus said, if there's sin in your life, take drastic steps and cut it off. That's what he's saying. Cut it off. And I'm sure there might be some here, and you're, you're here, and I'm not even going down this path. And sometimes people go and they have this attraction to someone who's not their spouse. They're married, and they start having an attraction to someone who's not their spouse. And what Jesus is saying, and what I'm telling you, is cut it off. You say, but you, you understand, Pastor, it's gone beyond that. Now there's some attraction, emotion. Cut it off. Jesus says, cut it off. Do whatever you have to do is necessary. Cut it off. Cut the cancer out. Cut it off. Save your life is what he's saying. Do whatever is necessary. 
If it means, let me just tell you, if it's something about your job, quit your job. Even take that drastic step. Get another job, but cut it off is what he's saying. Take the drastic steps. Do whatever is necessary is what he's saying. That's what he's saying, that we have to see, sever the source of our sin, no matter what it is. And you may think that's kind of severe, but that's what he's teaching here. That's what Jesus is saying. Whatever is in your life, that source that's causing you to sin, even though that's not the real reason, get rid of it. Don't allow that temptation in life. Get rid of it and turn from that to wherever you're going to go. That's what he's saying to us, to get rid of those things. Their third step we must take regarding sin, he says, live as a holy sacrifice. To live as a holy sacrifice. And I like these last two verses. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 49, I'm sorry. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other is what he says. What Jesus is saying is you have to understand that in this passage I, I, I read this morning that the fire is used in the same context with two different meanings here. It's not the same meaning where he's reading it. The first time it is used is in verse 43 and 48. It's used in regards to eternal fire. And when he's using that, the first time he uses it, referring to those people who go to hell whole. Remember that. Verse 43 and 48, go to hell whole is what he's saying. In other words, that they have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the words here to describe this place, there will be fire, and that fire will burn for eternity is what it says. And it goes on, it's a place where the worm will not die. In other words, there will be torment. There will be torment. And, and that torment that le doesn't lead to death, but it just leads to more torment is what he's saying. A torment that lets leads to more torment and more torment that is the eternal fire. And you don't want to be there. You don't want your worst enemy to be there. And Jesus died on the cross that so you and I won't have to spend one second of eternity in that place called hell. It's, I don't want you to be there. That's why he came and he died. But it's real. And Jesus talks about it. He talks about hell here. And, and I know it's, a, it, it's very popular today for some people to say, you know, I don't believe in hell. You ever hear some people say, I don't really believe in hell. And, and to not believe in it doesn't mean it deletes it, right? To not believe in it doesn't delete it. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And some people think that I choose not to believe in it, therefore it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that at all. God said there's a hell, so there's a hell. And we have to deal with it. We have the reality of to deal with it, to understand it is a real place. It's as much a real place, hell is, as there is heaven. And Jesus talked about both. So we have to understand there's a real place. So that's the eternal fire that he's talking about in verses 43 and 48. But then Jesus is talking about verse 49. He's talking about another fire. He says, it, he says everyone. He's referring to all believers in Jesus that we have to endure this fire of salt. Now, this fire of salt is unlike this fire in hell. One, it's not eternal. It's intermittent. It's not meant to destroy, but it's meant to purify. Remember, it's meant to purify. So the fire in verse 49 is for believers in Jesus. The fire in verse 43 and 48 are for unbelievers, for those who reject Jesus or don't accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. The fire in verse 49, he says, is the fire of salt. And salt is a good thing, right? Jesus talked about it a lot, about salt. And we, we talk about salt being a, a preservative. Well, well Jesus said it, it makes everything distinctive around it, what salt does. If you put salt on something, you put that foreign object on something else, you bring it on it, it makes whatever you put it on, it makes it better, right? It makes it better. That's what salt's supposed to do. 
but if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless, it's useless, it has to be cast aside. What Jesus was saying, salt was good, and we are to be the salt of the world, is what he's saying. We're to be a salt out here on this earth as we live. And he's saying that salt makes us distinct. And I want you to remember that. Distinct. We are to be distinct, is what he says. When he talks about the salt of fire, he's referring to a different kind of fire that's related and referred to in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Let me read it to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, where Peter writes, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed to what he says. When you read the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, they had those grain sacrifices that they made there. And these grain sacrifices would have salt on them. And salt was considered to be a purifying agent. So when it symbolized, when they put the salt in the grain, a pure sacrifice acceptable to God. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it symbolized. And so these offerings were burned as an offering made to the Lord by fire. And so what Jesus was talking, he's talking about this sacrificial system. When, when he said that, those people would understand what he's talking about. We don't. When you sacrifice something, he says you have the fire beneath it, you have the salt on top of it, so it makes it double salty is what he's saying. It's double salty. And the fire uh, kind of separate, becomes the salt that separates it, and the salt on top is what makes it distinct is what he's saying. The fire separates it from everything else, and it's the salt that makes it distinct. And so it makes the believer, the one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, as they are tested of the fire, and they're tested of the salt, and they're going through those, what God is doing is he causes that salt and that fire to make you and I more and more and more like Jesus. It purifies us. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing what Jesus is saying. He says, you're going to be tested by fire. You're going to be tested with salt. And you're going to go through this. And that fire is going to come. And it's going to separate all those impurities. going to take it away. And the salt's going to make you distinct. It's going to make you good. And he goes, it's going to make you more like Jesus. He's rubbing off those old edges, taking all those things out of our life. He says, you don't need those. You need to get rid of those things. And he's making us to be more and more and more like Jesus. That's what he's trying to do. And it's beautiful what he's, what he's sharing here with them. In verse 50, there's a second byproduct of the salt, which he tells us. Or the testing of our lives. That byproduct is that it, we live in peace with each other, is what he's saying. And we were tested with the salt. We live in peace with each other. It's in that sacrificial system in the Old Testament again. That the people were tested. The people were, were purified. And as they were purified, it brought the community of faith together in a peaceful way what he was saying there. It brought them together in a peaceful way. And I'm sure there's people here today that are being tested. And I'm sure there's people that are listening online that are being tested. They're going through some difficult times. And if you're not being tested, I want to remind you of something. You will be. And how I know that? Because Jesus said in verse 49, look at verse 49 again. Everyone, what does it say? Everyone will be salted with fire means every believer in Jesus will be tested. Every one of us are going to go through tests and go through other tests and go through other tests. But I don't have a test now. The one's coming. He says everyone will be tested. So he's saying have salt in your life. It's good to have salt in your life by maintaining a close relationship with Jesus. 
It's so important. If we ever lose that saltiness, we become useless. Do you understand that? This is so important what he's teaching them, that we become useless. The way we retain our saltiness, the only way to retain our saltiness is through an intimate, thriving, passionate, and close relationship with Jesus. It's the only way. Where the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is holy and pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. So the Bible is telling you and I, the only way we can keep that close, intimate relationship, and be salty Christians, because that's what God is calling us to be, is for you and I to be in the Word of God and reading it, to praying, to be studying, to serving God, to give to God, to go to church and worship God, worship Him together. If we're not doing those things, then we're not salty Christians. We're out here. If I'm not reading the Word, if I'm not praying, if I'm not serving Him, if I'm not giving to Him, if I'm not doing all those things, and I'm not even attending church, I'm out here, and I've lost my saltiness. And I can't will that saltiness back. I can't say, boy, I want to be a salty Christian. It's not going to happen. The only way it happens is through Jesus, me getting my word, drawing closer to him, praying, yielding my life to him, serving him, giving to him, worshiping together. All those things make such salty Christians. Do we understand it? We need to be together. We need to worship together. We need to read the word together. We need to pray together. We need all these things. God didn't say this, just, hey, I think it might, why don't you just do these things? He says, no, we need to be salty Christians, effective Christians to be used by God. And so we have to meet together. We have to pray. We have to read. We have to study. We have to give. We have to serve. We have to do all those things. We have to worship him. He says all those things. Some of us who are going through the fire today, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, let me read it, what it says. Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So what he's saying, realize that whatever you're going through, whatever it is, that God has a purpose, and he's purifying you to make you more and more like Jesus, to make you a better sacrifice, to get rid of those impurities in your life, to take all those things that shouldn't be there. He said, I need to get rid of all those things in your life that we may remove all the sin. He says, to make you more and more like Jesus, that we might be salt in our world, that we might be distinct. That's what he wants. He goes, I want you to be salty Christians. Does the world need salty Christians? Let me say, does the world need salty Christians? Yes, it does need salty Christians. So let's cut out the sin for him. Let's have, live holy lives for Jesus so we could be salty Christians because that's what the world needs. Remember, the salt on top of something purifies it. The salt always makes something better. That's what it was meant to do, make it better. And as God sends us out in the world as salty Christians, we're going to make the world better by taking Jesus with us, to tell others about Jesus so they might hear about Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do, to tell others about Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, don't miss out on the opportunity of a gift that is indescribable. Jesus is indescribable. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like him. He died on the cross. You and I would not have to endure the eternal fires of hell for one second. He goes, that isn't meant for you. I came to rescue from that. And all we have to do is understand who Jesus is 
that he died on the cross for our sins, and he's the son of God. And you and I come and we realize I'm a sinner. And Jesus died on that cross for my sins, and I put my faith and my trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that, do that. Give your life to Jesus. Accept that eternal gift from God through Jesus Christ. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternity with him forever that he promises us, for all who come to him. He will not turn any away. Come to him. You don't have to get yourself right. You can't get yourself right. Come with all of your sins and all your problems, warts and all. He accepts everything. He accepts it all. Come to him the way you are. And he promised to accept you and to forgive you your sins. For those of us who say, you know, I know Jesus. Our sin is not a small deal, right? Hopefully you realize what Jesus is saying here. That's what this teaching was supposed to get us to understand when Jesus said this. Your sin's not a small deal. Don't ever belittle your sin. Don't try to manage your sin. But he's saying, cut it out. Don't make excuses for your sin. Because when you make excuses and try to justify, you're trying to manage your sin. That doesn't work. He says, cut it out. Let's live for him. That's what he wants us to do. And we do that through his working and through you and I making right choices. The Christian life is about you and I not just doing anything we want to do, but making right choices to carry out his plan. And that's what we have to do. God's going to do his part, but it's me yielding my heart to him and making right choices. So we can be salt in our world. So we can be distinct. We can be more and more like Jesus. But when I think about this, and every time I say it, I say, man, I don't know about for you, but for me, I have a long way to go to be like Jesus. And because I got a long way to go, I can expect there's going to be more testing and salt and fire that's going to come in my life to purify me, to take the things off that maybe some things I shouldn't be doing or saying or thinking. And God's going to do that in my life to make me more and more like Jesus. Why? Not because he's, he's out there and saying, man, I got to discipline you and I'm bringing down the, the lightning rod. No, he says, because I love you. I love you so much, and I want you to be like my son. And you know, when God says, I want you to be like my son, you know there's nothing greater than Jesus. He's not asking you to be second best. He says, I want you to be like my son, because there's no one like him. There's no one like Jesus. And if you can be like Jesus, that would be the greatest compliment. That would be the greatest thing to God to say, I want you to be like my son. Not like an angel. I want you to be like my son. And that's what he wants for each and every one of us, that we might be salty Christians. How many of you want to be a salty Christian? Every, every one of us should say, I want to be salty. I want to be really salty because I want to make an impact with my family, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my friends, my co-workers, my community. And the only way we're going to do it, guys, is being salty Christians. Not just going out there and telling them about Jesus, but they see him lived out in our lives every day. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We thank you, Jesus, because there is no one. There's absolutely no one like you. Say, Lord, you came and you didn't just talk about how we need to live. But, Lord, you lived it out. You experienced it. You showed us how to live. You showed us, Lord, even to do it not with the harshness, but with compassion and mercy and love. And, Lord, we look at your example and the things that you did. And sometimes their teachings seem harsh. But, Lord, it's like a paradox. There's always a point to them. He made a good point. He made a point here to cut off or pluck out or cut off our foot or, or our hand or pluck out our eye. It's to, to, to do whatever we have to do to get rid of the sin in our life. But don't try to manage it. Don't try to justify it. And I pray for each and every one of us this morning. Dear Lord, we'd be right here and we'd be honest with you and allow the Holy Spirit to convict us. And Lord, there's sin in our lives. Let's not try to hide it and try to make excuses. Well, let's confess it right now.
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's just, that's for every one of us here, that we just confess our sins right now and say, God, I, I've been walking right with you. I haven't been living for you. I've been doing my own thing, and Lord, I'm not salty anymore. But Lord, I ask you to restore that saltiness. Help me to be intimate and close and passionate with Jesus every day of my life. Help me to get back in the Word of God. Help me to be praying. Help me to be talking with you. Help me to serve you. Help me to attend church on a regular basis. Help me to worship together. Help me to give my tithe and what you want from me. Help me to live the life you called me so I can be that salty Christian who is passionate, ready to be used by you. So I can be useful to, to you, God. Lord, that we just confess our sins. And you promise, Lord, you promise Philippians 1, 6, that you're going to carry on that work. It's going to be there, right there for us. Not to condemn us, to help us every step of the way. And I pray that for each one of us. That we live the life you've called us to live so we might be those salty Christians that make an impact in our world around us. So we might see other people come to know Jesus and they too become salty Christians. That's the goal. That's the mission. And one day, Lord, we're going to leave this world and we're going to be with you for eternity. For eternity. And Lord, we can't wait for that. But while we're here, Lord, Help us to be the saltiest Christians that we possibly can be and make a difference in our world. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, we ask all these things in that beautiful, wonderful name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.